Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today, I've got a great interview for you with Sam, who asked me not to use his last name for fear that he will get kicked out of his current church. But anyhow, he tells his story of navigating evangelical Christianity as a biblical Unitarian. He talks about what it was like in participating in college ministry and in local churches, and sadly, how he got excommunicated from both. Now, as you might suspect, this kind of treatment drove Sam to question his non-Trinitarian beliefs. But even though he had every reason to abandon his quote-unquote unorthodox convictions, his research into Bible, theology, and history strengthened his faith that the Father of Jesus is the only true God. Now he has a YouTube channel where he interviews theologians, and recently he debated Chris Date on Preston Sprinkle's podcast, and he did very well against him. Here now is episode 367, Excommunicated for My Beliefs. Sam, welcome to Restitutio. So glad you could speak with me today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Sean. Let's begin with your own faith journey. Were you raised in a Christian home? Yes, I, I was raised in a Christian home, and I was actually raised in a biblical Unitarian Christian home, which is, I think, not extremely common, although you, you and I, I think, have a pretty similar mm-hmm. background in that respect. My parents had been in the way international. My dad starting in like the early 70s, and my mom after she met him sometime in the 80s. But I was born after Victor Werewold died. And so my parents and some other people in the Chicago area, I live in the Chicago area, were had already broken off from the way international and were trying to create their own fellowship, their own church, and trying to figure out what that looked like and what was good about the way, what was bad about the way, how do we how do we pick up these pieces and build it into something? And all of that happened, you know, kind of right before I was born. So I grew up in a church that was basically a bunch of former way people trying to figure out how to make it work. Um, we were about, I don't know, 50 to 100 people over the years, very tight knit, all those sorts of things. So I grew up in that environment, um, which I think you can relate to more than just about anybody. What was it like for you? I mean, it was it was great. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, you know, it's it's wonderful to have a tight knit church, right? To to be able to go to church on Sunday and have people know your name, to have all these families that have such a shared history. And when you have such a unique identity as a church, it can really kind of bind you together in sort of a, a, a special, strong way. So honestly, my, my church growing up was wonderful. I, I didn't have any bad experiences, really, that I can think of. The people were wonderful. I, I, I thought it was great. Because my church was small, it didn't, we didn't have like a really good youth group or like summer camp or all of those uh-huh. sorts of things that some other people might have. So I grew up like maybe starting in middle school or something like that. I went to youth group at Willow Creek, right? Willow Creek, sort of like the big mainstream evangelical megachurch, sort of like the archetypal megachurch. Yeah. Uh, Bill Hybels, right? 
Bill Hybels, right? Although it's it's not doing so great at the present. But uh, back then, back then, you know, I went to youth group there, or like maybe a young life group every once in a while. I went to summer camp at, through Wheaton College and stuff like that. So I had like my home church and my home kind of religious theological identity was in the fellowship that I grew up that was biblical Unitarian. But I had all of these other interactions with, you know, regular mainstream Trinitarian evangelicals. So I kind of had a foot in both worlds from a pretty young age. And sort of as a part of that, my, my parents taught me to not talk about the Trinity <laughs> when I was in those <laughs> settings. Just don't bring it up. If it comes up, uh, stay silent until the subject changes sort of thing. Wow. So that was sort of my my theological upbringing. I wasn't like a rebellious kid. I didn't have any doubts or, you know, any sorts of things like that all through high school. I, I was a, a, a pretty good, pretty devout kid um, and really more or less enjoyed church and liked what I got out of it. So I went to college at Cornell, sort of near your neck of the woods in upstate yep. New York. And I joined a Christian fellowship, um, sort of one of the mainstream campus fellowships um, that, that you'll find on college campuses. And I, you know, over the years got involved. I was a Bible study leader. I was a worship leader. I played the guitar and sang. Um, I was on the student leadership council, you know, those sorts of things. But it was a, you know, ostensibly a Trinitarian evangelical organization. And I just kind of based off of what I had learned growing up, just kept silent on that subject. And as long as I didn't bring it up, I had no problem blending in, no problem even more than blending in, you know, being something of a, a student leader. My sophomore year of college, one of the other Christian fellowships had their president, I believe, come out as gay. And he um, not only came out as gay, but he took a boyfriend and he wanted his Christian fellowship to affirm that relationship and that part of his identity. And uh, that fellowship asked him to step down from leadership. They didn't kick him out, but he could no longer be the president, no longer lead a Bible study, stuff like that. And so I was kind of aware of that situation, but it was kind of hushed for a while. And then I'm not sure exactly how, but the, the Gay Student Alliance, Gay Straight Student Alliance found out about it and sort of made a big, I don't know, scene of the whole thing. And there were really large protests on campus, like hundreds or even thousands of people protesting angry uh, editorials in the student newspaper, all of that sort of thing that you can kind of imagine basically saying, how dare this Christian fellowship be, you know, so close-minded to kick someone out. Although that wasn't in my fellowship. But what happened is, is that all of the other Christian fellowships were like, oh man, we need to make sure that doesn't happen to us. So they had all of, my fellowship had all of the leaders sign a statement of faith, which we hadn't been asked to do before, mm -hmm. right? I had managed to find my way into these positions without ever agreeing to sort of any, you know, statement of faith or anything like that. And so suddenly there's this piece of paper put in front of me that has, I don't know, you know, 10 propositions or whatever, and two or three of them are, you know, very Trinitarian. And I told the student leader, or not the student leader, the staff leader, the, the sort of campus minister, that I was like, you know, I can't, I can't sign this. And he's like, well, why not? And I'm like, I don't believe in the Trinity. And he's like, what? <laughs> you know, like, it, it was so, 
it was such a shock to him that someone, because he had known me for two years and he trusted me and stuff like that. So like, how could someone have that strong of a faith and, you know, be that reliable as a student leader and all of those other sorts of things. And then only later to find out that he disagrees with what they view as like this bedrock doctrine. And so eventually after some hooing and hawing, I was uh, kind of forced to step down from my leadership positions. And, and that was one of those times where I really had to kind of struggle with this split identity thing for the first time. Like up until then, it had more or less worked, mainly just because I was quiet about it. Right. As you can imagine, as you know, like growing up in that sort of post way environment, there's a lot of, you know, what what pieces were good, what pieces were bad, what do we want to hang on to, what was off base, what was right. For whatever reason, the the Trinity or believing not in the Trinity just always made sense. For all of the other things that maybe I might have changed my mind about, that one I never did. And so kind of after that that incident I, on campus, I like kind of delved into the subject in more detail than I ever had before in my life. That's what got you started on deepening right. your knowledge. Interesting. Right. So I'd like, you know, I, I'd always remembered what I'd been taught, but I'd never really gone beyond what I'd been taught myself, I guess. And so I started reading like church fathers and, you know, uh, kind of, you know, read Augustine and, you know, those sorts of things to just try and figure this out. And if I'm honest, I think there was part of me that was hoping to be convinced by the Trinity uh, by learning more about it. But if anything, the opposite happened, uh, really, in terms of just like, this doesn't make sense. The history of this is a little bit fishy. The Bible just really doesn't teach this. It just really makes so much more sense from the biblical Unitarian perspective. The history seems better. I can't help but come to a different conclusion the more I, the more and more I look at this. And I spent more time reading Trinitarian stuff than, than Unitarian stuff, because there's more of it, at least. Yeah. And, and even then, it, it still, it just, it seemed false. It, it seemed off, I guess. So that's sort of my, the gist of my identity in a nutshell. Anything else about your background that you think would be relevant before we go on to talk about the YouTube channel? I could talk about getting excommunicated the second time. But oh, yeah. Let's, let's role, do that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> let's do that. All right. Th that actually is kind of an interesting story. So that was the incident in college, right? That happened when I was about 20 or 21 years old. Uh -huh. And so maybe about like six, seven, eight years later, I have since, you know, graduated from college, I've gotten my master's degree, I've gotten married, I'm back living in the Chicagoland area near where I grew up. The church that I'd grown up with had kind of more or less dissolved into not existing anymore. It had uh -huh. sort of declined in numbers over the years and it eventually declined in numbers to the point where it really wasn't viable anymore. So by the time I moved back to Chicago, I had been gone for, you know, over 10 years. I'm in like sort of the weird place where I'm back home, but I need to find a new home church. And my wife, she she doesn't she didn't come from a Unitarian background. She came from a Trinitarian background. So and she was still sort of wrestling with this question, I guess, at this time. So we kind of had a, a difference of opinion on this question in our marriage. So we were going to we decided to go to like sort of a standard evangelical Trinitarian Bible church near where we lived in the suburbs of Chicago. Okay. And 
uh, we had been going there for a year. We had been in a Bible study. We had made lots of friends, um, all of that good sort of stuff, had a perfectly positive experience at this church. I had, you know, never brought up this Trinity question like I was sort of used to being able to do. And so um, at one point, the pastor asked for volunteers for the worship band. I'm like, well, I can play in worship bands. I haven't done that since college. If they need some volunteers, then I'll go ahead and volunteer for that. And so I put in my name and sort of after a series of events, they were going to make me sign a statement of faith again. Um, and so I sort of preempted that conversation before it even got to that. And like, look, I, I should talk to the pastor and just sort of lay this on the table instead of surprising with it, him with this before we get too far along. And so I met with the lead pastor and one of the elders at a Starbucks and sort of laid out my position. And they're like, well, huh, <laughs> never heard of that before. You believe what? And it's, it's really funny when you talk with Trinitarians for the first time about this, especially ones that have never been exposed. They like constantly think that you like just think Jesus is like a swell fellow or like a good teacher or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And it's like, oh, well, no, I don't think that Jesus is just like, you know, the Buddha who grew up in Israel or something like that, or, you know, <laughs> or like Gandhi, but, you know, in a different time era or something like that. Like, no, I, I think he's extraordinarily special. I think he's the Messiah. I think he's the son of God and, you know, is utterly unique among humans in all of history. So it's hard to get that idea across. The pastor was like, man, I need to think about this, right? Because it was a new thing for him. So what happened is, the pastor's roommate in seminary was Fred Sanders. Oh. And Fred Sanders happened to be doing a semester at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, in the Chicago suburbs at that time. So he called up his friend, Fred Sanders, and I had a meeting with Fred Sanders and my lead pastor and myself for about an hour. And he was something like expert witness brought in to the, the examine expert, me. Yeah. Yeah. Or something <laughs> like that. It sounds like a pretty, pretty tense meeting. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping it wasn't going to be tense. It really was pretty tense. Like Fred Sanders is something like the evangelical theological expert on the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. Um, I think he's a professor at Biola University in California, but he was in Chicago for that semester. Like my point to him was like, look, why do you need to believe in the Trinity in order to be saved? I didn't want to have like a full smackdown on the whole doctrine of the Trinity with him because that's hard to do in an hour. And he's Fred Sanders after all. So that so my question was like, you know, look, why why do you need to believe in the Trinity to take communion? Why do you need to believe in the Trinity in order to be counted as a Christian? And I don't, for whatever reason, that just train of thought just never stuck. And we ended up basically having a pseudo debate about the Trinity for an hour. And like, I have to say, I, you know, maybe Fred Sanders was going easy on me, but it, it wasn't very convincing. Like if yeah. like that is the, if that's the lead expert, right. And, you know, I'm privileged, I guess, or honored that he would have taken the time to meet with me, but I, I was like, I, I felt like I made good points and that he didn't really answer my most important questions. So that led to me getting excommunicated from that church. They literally oh, told me I was no longer allowed to take communion there. 
And so my wife and I switched to a different church. And so I'm still going to really a church of actually the same denomination as the last one. But I knew the pastor at this church ahead of time because it's near where I grew up. And so he was willing to accommodate me and let me take communion, even knowing my theology. So that's another weird thing about this, is that you can get two completely different responses from different pastors, even within the same denomination. It really is, you know, up to them how they decide to handle this. So right now, my church situation is okay. Um, I'm allowed to take communion, but most of the people in the church don't know. But yeah, it's, it's always a challenge to figure out how to balance and blend into a church and which churches to choose in this sort of situation. But that's basically the situation I find myself in. Man, that's tough. I wish it wasn't like that. I wish this would, this could be a topic that open dialogue would prevail and that we could have honest conversation about, but so often it is the shibboleth that, you know, if you don't affirm it right down the line, doesn't matter if you understand it, you have to affirm it. And if you do so, then you are allowed to pass through the gate. And if not, we cut your head off. And it's just unbelievable that this is the doctrine. It's not resurrection. It's not crucifixion and atonement or something like that, something that's very clear in Scripture. But it's this uh, convoluted combination of propositions that on the surface seem at the very least, extremely paradoxical. <laughs> yes. So, um, and yet, you know, we all have to sort of cross our eyes and be like, I believe that. I believe those creedal statements, even though I don't understand them. And then somebody pats you on the head and you can play in the band or whatever. Right. And I, I actually think that what related to what you were just saying, I think that part of the reason why there is so much, I don't know, extra caution and scrutiny around this doctrine is precisely because it's hard to defend, right? And, and that because it's confusing, because it's paradoxical, because most of the lay people don't really understand it, and because it's hard to defend from scripture, I believe that it's had to have this extra layer of protection around it built up over, you know, the centuries of Christian history in order for it to be preserved. I, I, I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree with that. Now, tell me about this YouTube channel you've got called Transfigured. Where did that name come from? I mean, obviously the transfiguration of Jesus, but why, why that name? The short story is, is that at the transfiguration, the apostles saw who Jesus truly was right? They had, you know, been hanging out around Jesus, and they'd seen him do miracles and teach a bunch of things, but they didn't entirely really get it. And at the transfiguration, they saw who he was for the first time in a certain sense. And so my YouTube channel is about trying to see Jesus for who he really is. And so that's why it's called Transfigured. Very good, very good. And you started this about a year ago. You've got 25 videos on it, a number of guests uh, from multiple different backgrounds. You had Richard Rubenstein, uh, a big name in the whole subject, uh, Anthony Buzzard, Bo Branson a bunch of times, Chris Date, your arch nemesis, uh, just kidding, <laughs> Keegan Chandler, Bill Schlegel, Dale Tuggy, lots of other scholars in there. Uh, what are you trying to do with this uh, YouTube channel? What's your aim here? Honestly, part of the aim is a little bit selfish 
is that I really enjoy talking about this subject. I enjoy learning about this and exploring it. And it's very difficult to find good conversation partners on this topic, as you sort of already explained, because it's such a shibboleth that if you try and bring it up in Bible study or even among friends or something, it can get so heated and so flustered quickly that, that it's almost impossible to have good conversations about that. So one way that I get to have good conversations about that is I get to have a YouTube channel where I can invite, you know, uh, experts from all over the place to want to come and talk to me. And so I really get a kick out of that. I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. So there's some part of it that's almost purely for self-enjoyment in that reason. But larger than, than just that piece, I think that this topic really needs to be talked about and explored. I appreciate people who do debates. Um, and uh, as you kind of alluded to, I've done one debate with Chris Dayton myself, but I don't honestly particularly enjoy debates. I don't totally enjoy participating in them. I, I feel like really nerve wracked uh, preparing for them. <laughs> and, and I, you know, leading like the week up to it, I'm just like in this constant state of feeling like I, I have this exam in college that I haven't studied for. Mm -hmm. And that I'm yeah, going to show yeah. up and that I'm, I'm going to bomb it. And I, I don't like that feeling. And also, to be honest, I don't always enjoy listening to debates either, because it seems like oftentimes they just talk past each other or, or don't really, you know, communicate and listen. And so I think that there's sort of a space in this sort of conversation around Trinitarianism and Unitarianism for sort of a, a more relaxed, less hostile or less combative um, dialogue. And that uh -huh. I, you know, I feel like in YouTube land and podcast land in general, the sort of long form conversation is growing in popularity. Uh, you know, people like Joe Rogan in sort of just secular mainstream culture are sort of popularizing that sort of dialogue. And I think mm -hmm. that there's an opportunity to bring that style into the theological space and into the sort of Christian YouTube and podcast land, and specifically focusing on the doctrine of the Trinity and Unitarianism. And so to get people who are experts, or even uh, some of my guests are just some of my friends who are like Yeah, I noticed me. that. Some of the earlier ones, you've got just random friends on there. Right, right. Just random people like me who are sort of self-taught experts, but don't have any sort of credentials to back it up. Sometimes those conversations can actually be the most fun because they don't feel like they have anything to lose. Uh -huh. um, and so, so just having kind of open dialogue on this subject to invite people to be perhaps a little bit less guarded and a little bit more curious and open-minded is, is my, my overall goal for the channel. And are you continuing on with this or you, you got it out of your system or are you, you still booking people to, to talk or what, what's uh, 2021 looking like? Sure. Yes. I, I'm looking to book out a schedule. Right now I'm on something of paternity leave. I, I had my second daughter three weeks ago. Um, Congratulations. So I, I have, well, thank you very much. I, so I've been a little bit preoccupied with that and my ability to read books and, and invite guests and prepare for conversations has been a little bit hampered. But maybe in another month or two, sort of in the new year for 2021, I'll be back up and running. And I try to have a guest on maybe once a week, once every two weeks is sort of about the schedule that I can handle. Oh, very good. Very good. Let's talk about the Chris Date debate. How did you manage to score a debate with date? Sure. So I have to give credit to my friend, Luke Thompson. Luke Thompson's been on my channel twice, I believe. 
Um, he is a good friend with Preston Sprinkle, and he is also a friend of Chris Date. The common connection between Chris Date and Preston Sprinkle is that they're both into the doctrine of annihilationism or uh -huh. conditional mortality. And yeah. my friend, Luke Thompson, was into that for a while. He's a universalist now. But he went to the uh, all those conferences and stuff that they had together. So he knew them both personally. And he just wanted to get me in front of Chris Date to talk about this subject. So he sort of tugged at Preston to host a conversation between both of us. And uh, Chris was also game because his book with Dale Tuggy was coming out. And so um, I'm sure that he wanted a little bit of extra um, or publicity and uh, awareness of that, too. Preston Sprinkle has a lot of followers, right? Preston Sprinkle has a lot of followers. I'm not sure quite what his audience was. I, I would guess that he might average something in the thousands or even ten, low tens of thousands of views per, yeah. per podcast. Yeah. And uh, j just for those of you who aren't familiar with Preston Sprinkle, he co-wrote a book on, what was it, Hell with uh, Francis Chan. Yeah, and, that's sort uh, of so one of his biggest claims to fame. Yeah. And then uh, famously changed his mind about hell <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> after he wrote the book. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he's got a great book called Fight uh, about nonviolence that I uh, that I have seen as well. So uh, he's, he's an interesting guy, but uh, he doesn't usually do debates on his podcast. So this was really kind of uh, different for him. Yeah. Yeah. It was I, I think it was different for all of us, except for maybe Chris Date. Oh, um, yeah. Chris Date <laughs> debates in his sleep. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> yes, he, he he's quite good at it. So yeah, it was it was different for Preston because Preston's a little bit more like me, I guess, in that he really likes long form conversations and digging into difficult topics, but in sort of a calm and interactive sort of way. Um, so this was a little bit different. And it wasn't like a full debate where there's like five minutes for your introduction and your opening statement and your re your rebuttal and your counter rebuttal and all of those sorts of things. It wasn't exactly like that. It was a little bit in between a conversation and a formal debate, which I, I thought it worked pretty well. Yeah, it was really interesting because there were formal components and timed opening statements for sure. Then there would just be random conversation mixed in. Like, oh, yeah. you did a good job with that opening statement. <laughs> just yeah. a little back and forth. And then Preston would just randomly change the topic to something else and then come back. And uh, then it would go formal again. So it was really an interesting kind of a hybrid model. I wonder if we could talk about that debate just a little bit. Sure. Chris Date opened up and he had three main scriptures to discuss. Philippians 2 the Carmen Christi uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. So I think those of us who are sort of uh, well-worn war horses in this movement would expect Date to use Philippians 2 and Hebrews 1, uh, but not Matthew 23, 37, probably not even a verse that many of us have uh, firmly in our thinking, but that's the the text with this uh, hen, uh, where Jesus says, "I'd like to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks," and uh, maybe you, maybe you could summarize Date's argument, like why does why does Jesus talking about wanting to gather Jerusalem like a hen mean that he's claiming to be God? <laughs> sure. Uh, it, like, honestly, I'll say that my first reaction to that was to chuckle a little bit, sort of like a, an art, like the argument from uh, protective bird imagery, right? That is, <laughs> yes. it sounds a little bit That's its silly. official name. 
Right. Yes. Uh, the the argument of uh, avian uh, protectorate, or you know, <laughs> I, you, like, <laughs> and so it sounds a little bit funny at first. But I have to say, Chris Date is is a sharp guy, and he he does his homework. I think that a very important lesson that I've learned from all these conversations is that even when a guest or someone you disagree with says something that seems a little bit ridiculous to you at first, it's wise and prudent to take it seriously, to assume that that you're actually the one who doesn't get the importance of what's being said instead of them. And that if you have that sort of more humble, respectful approach, that you can actually learn more that way. So I, I will say that, so that Chris's argument is something like this. There's, I think, six or seven passages in the Old Testament that use some form of protective bird imagery where either a mom bird or some other sort of bird is giving protection over something. And that all of those references in the Old Testament are to God. And there aren't any references like that to, I don't know, a king or the Messiah or a prophet or what have you. Even more than that, if you look in the culture of the time in sort of the ancient Near East, that the bird imagery is often commonly associated with divinity, right? Like you can think of like the Persian, you know, eagle that has its wings out and it's sort of associated with like the Zoroastrian god and a bunch of things like that. And so what Chris Date was saying is that that sort of protective bird imagery was sort of in the consciousness and culture of the time as something that would only be invoked about deity. And that for Jesus to say, you know, I, oh, Jerusalem, I long to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks or something like that, is for Jesus to be invoking that divine imagery about himself. And I'll say, you know, that sort of thing, you know, is not implausible that there are symbolism, uh, you know, various ways of communicating symbolism like that, that are sort of lost on modern ears. I would just say that I don't think it's actually a good argument for a couple reasons. First off, like six or seven passages in the Old Testament isn't a lot, right? I, I'm a statistician as my day job. And the probability that if you were to just like randomly assign six or seven uses of, of protective bird imagery that they would all fall on God is not improbable, right? Even if they aren't meant to be exclusively about God. So, so it, that's, it's not a very large sample size is I guess what I would say. And then I would also say that the meaning of Jesus's words are pretty clear. You know, Jesus is wished that Jerusalem had treated him differently. He wished that Jerusalem had listened to him. He was trying to get them to repent, to not follow the way that would lead to violence and destruction, but follow the way that would lead to peace. And so he's sort of lamenting over Jerusalem's disobedience and that, you know, the metaphor of that he wishes he could protect Jerusalem like a mother hen could protect its chicks, you know, it makes sense, right? You don't need any further explanation of what Jesus is trying to say. Basically, all the meanings on the surface, you don't need to infer that any surplus of meaning where he's making allusion to his deity or something like that. So you don't need that reference to understand seemingly everything that Jesus is trying to say. And then, like, thirdly, let's even imagine the case where protective bird imagery is somehow uniquely reserved for deity or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, 
imagine even if that were true and that that was you know part of the symbolic language of the time that it could still be the case that Jesus is just referring to his own like agency as a representative of God even if that were true like right. sort of imagine the presidential seal of the United States right it's an eagle with um its wings out and maybe you know is it like a, a olive branch in its claws or i forget right I yeah but but we would know it if we saw it, right? Every American, if we saw the presidential seal, would say, oh, yeah, that's the presidential seal of the United States. But, you know, imagine like the secretary of state is going to a different country or something like that to represent the United States in a negotiation or whatever. He could have the presidential seal either on his airplane or in the documents that he's signing or whatever. And it's just that he's representing the president of the United States and has been given that authority. So I, I, I don't think that um, the argument from protective bird imagery really stands up. But I'll give Chris Dake credit. I, he, he put that, he used that um, as an argument in his debate with Dale Tuggy and in his book. And I think part of the reason why he did it is he knew that that was an argument that a lot of Unitarians hadn't heard before and that it would catch them off guard and that there would be some sort of, I don't know, uh, value to, to using a novel argument. But at the end of the day, I don't, I don't really find it very persuasive or I don't think it works. Yeah. Yeah, it, it follows the classic form, if Jesus did X, only God does X, therefore Jesus is God. So, right. uh, you know, but that that is, uh, that is really a sloppy way of, uh, of approaching it, because so many times the only doesn't end up being true. So, for example, Jesus forgave sins, only God can forgive sins, ergo Jesus is God. Well, later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus confers the authority on his apostles to forgive sins. Right. right? So, and and like, it even says in the Gospels, you know, they they were they celebrated that God had given such authority to men. Right. 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 It, it explains or, it right there. Yeah. Or raising someone from the dead, or healings, and all these other things. Or walking that Jesus on water. Did. Or, walking yeah. on water. Right. Yeah. It sounds really convincing on its surface. It sounds like a nice tight syllogism. Uh, but it's just, they, they just fall short over and over again, especially when you see that Peter also walked on the water, uh, Elijah also raised the dead, uh, different uh, counterexamples where other humans God worked through to do things that only God can do. Yeah, yeah, only God can do them, but God chooses to work with people over and over. So, yeah, I think either way you go with the bird imagery, whether it's just wishful thinking or if it really is trying to tap into some mysterious way of sort of like winking and saying, I'm really God over here, guys, the, the, the argument of agency is, is well able to give a solid answer to that. One of the places where you really shined, I thought, was where you got into the topic of church history, which is seems like it's always just lurking right beneath the surface in these debates. Like we're, everyone's saying, yeah, let's do a biblical debate. Let's just focus on the Bible. And then Within ten minutes, we're in the we're arguing about your of Antioch yeah. and Tertullian. <laughs> yeah. Right, <laughs> it's just it's just so hard not to talk about it. I really enjoyed that uh, that part of the conversation. You were basically making the case that well, the further back we go in time, the less Trinitarian Christians uh, seem to be, and if we trace that vector all the way back to its origin of the earliest Christians, th- there is no Trinity at all. Uh, so I thought that was a, a pretty important uh, point. 
that you were mm-hmm. making there. And, and it's something that we, we do well to, to do more research on and to really get specific about as well. When he brought up Ignatius of Antioch, I, I kind of eye-rolled, and I'm like, oh boy, here we go again. There's no way any of Ignatius of Antioch's writings would stand up in a court of law. I mean, we know they've been tampered with. So right. it's like, <laughs> for, right. for either side, I mean, okay, he's going to argue for the middle recension. Well, that's because Orthodox scholars have considered the middle recension as lining up with their beliefs. We could just argue for the long recension because that's subordinationist. And right. it's clearly uh, anti-Trinitarian. So, you know, but who's to say which way it, it worked or if neither of them preserves Ignatius's original statements, it's a real weak point, I'd say, overall. And if that's all you got, you know, I don't think that's going to stand up. So anyhow, back to, to the whole subject of church history and stuff like that. You you had mentioned before reading Augustine, you whipped out a Clement of Rome quote, seemingly out of nowhere, in the middle of the debate to substantiate Philippians 2. Is this an area that you spend a lot of time on or have spent a lot of time on? And if, and if so, why why do you see church history as so significant? Yeah, I, I think for these sorts of debates, church history is extremely important, except it's really hard to communicate in short periods of time. And it's really hard to come across as convincing in a debate format, because it'll just end up being a I say, he says situation. And people will just trust the person that they trust the most already uh, to present the information accurately. And if they don't know it themselves, they're like, you know, I bet, you know, how many people have even heard of Ignatius of Antioch or could know the difference between Ignatius of Antioch and Irenaeus of Lyon, right? You know, it's like the those sorts of details are, it's really hard to get across, but it's extremely important. And I think it makes a really strong, important point. I, you know, really love history and sort of, like I mentioned in my story earlier, ever since sort of taking upon this subject as something that I needed to take seriously, mainly because of that thing that happened to me in college, I've read a lot of the early church fathers and read a lot of books about the history of early Christianity. And I think that this was really probably one of Chris's weakest points. Chris has been on my channel since that debate, and we've talked about this some more, and we're Facebook friends, and every once in a while we'll get in a Facebook comment section battle on this sort of subject, but but we try and stay friends afterwards. And this is a, a subject that I really think is important for Chris and a lot of people like Chris to understand is that modern American evangelical Protestantism, which Chris Date does a good job of sort of representing, has a very different trinity or a very different understanding of how the Son and the Father relate and substance and all of that stuff than anyone who, you know, was around in early church history. It's just drastically different. And another thing that is really common and frustrating in these debates about the Trinity is that we'll start talking about the Trinity, and then once you push them on the Trinity, then they sort of retreat back into arguing for the deity of Christ. But those aren't the same thing. It's a little bit easier to defend the deity of Christ in some sense, you know, we'll leave that vague what exactly it means. 
it's easier to defend that than it is to defend the whole kit and caboodle of the Trinity. So there's, you know, what's called Mott and Bailey tactics, right? Where like castles in the middle ages have a moat and then a protected fortress. Or if you've seen Lord of the Rings, right? There's like the battle of Helm's Deep where there's the big fort and then the little fort, right? And then like, once you lose the big fort then you retreat to the safeguard of the little fort that's easier to defend what happens in these debates is they'll start out trying to defend the whole Trinity. And then you just like, it's really easy to find a hole somewhere in that wall. And then they retreat back to the deity of Christ as really the main thing that they care about. And then you end up focusing on that subject. I would say that, yes, many of the early church fathers that we can see like uh, Ignatius and Irenaeus and some of those Clement of Alexandria, et cetera, believe in some amount of divinity and deity to Jesus. And that's pretty clear. And it's easy to find quotes from them that say that. But with their understanding of how that worked and their understanding of exactly in what sense Jesus was divine and in exactly in what sense that related to the Father and God and all of that stuff is just so very, very different than modern evangelical Trinitarianism. And it's just really hard to get them to see that. And it's like, there's no one who thought like Chris Date that God is one being and there's three persons who subsist in the one being in the way that Chris understands it till like the 1800s. I actually think that that's like a Calvinist development that happens in reaction to Unitarianism inside New England Congregationalism. So I actually think that Chris Date's form of the Trinity is a reaction against biblical Unitarianism, an ironic thing that I, I haven't convinced him of. But I think if you would look into that, that's true. One of the things that I thought was very revealing in my conversation with Chris Date that I had on my YouTube channel, not with Preston Sprinkle, was that I asked him, so in what sense is Jesus begotten of the Father, right? That's a, uh-huh. it's a very important question. That, well, that yeah, that's offer. a huge topic. Right. It's a huge topic. And so he doesn't think that the pre-incarnate Jesus or the pre-incarnate Son or whatever term he would prefer is begotten of the Father, that what? all three persons in the Trinity are just like equal subsisters, but that the begottenness <laughs> of the Son refers to his humanity. It, he's only begotten in the incarnation. He's not begotten before all ages. And like, if he had said that at the wow, Council of Nicaea, total heresy. Yeah, yeah, they would done. have thrown him out the door, right? right. Even the Arians would have been mad at him. Right? Everyone would have been mad at him for that. Right. Right. And, and so, and, and every church father would have found that to be just a repugnant idea. So it's amazing how different his theology is from the early church fathers, and yet he can't see it because they say that Jesus is God in some sense. So he just assumes it's in the sense that he means. And that's really, I think, the one of his biggest mistakes, if I had to be honest. Well, I'd love to talk more about the debate, uh, but uh, I, I think we do have to move on. I, I will just say that Sprinkle's arguments were by far the weakest of anyone. Uh, he cited the Elohim plural form, yeah. uh, which is just like, my goodness. No one does that. <laughs> like, e- even even uh, Date wouldn't do that, or, or even Brown, uh, Michael right. Brown wouldn't do that. That's just been totally given up because... The plural form, Elohim, you know, it's used of a singular gods, right? Like Dagon is called Elohim. So you can't say that every god in A&E has, ancient Near East, has a mysterious plurality. Right. Genesis 1.26, let us make man, same thing. You know, it's like that's been totally uh, debunked. Actually, Peter Gentry, 
in his uh, magisterial book, uh, Kingdom Through Covenant, deals with uh, Genesis 126 at length. And he doesn't, in any place, uh, go to the Trinity there because he's just like, yeah, that's not that's not what this is. And he believes in the Trinity. He's very strong. He's a Baptist, you know? Like, yeah. Um, and then his other argument was from Daniel 7, saying that the Septuagint hints that somehow the Son of Man just is the Ancient of Days. Well, not if you look at any translation of the Septuagint, right. whether the old right. Britain one or the new, it's called like NETS, New English Translation of the Septuagint. And no them, early church father thought that or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. And, and besides no, that, no we, that we all believe in Hebrew primacy, right? So right. like, why would we take a obviously you know secondary, a derived reading, uh, unless there was a problem with the Hebrew text, right? But uh, I don't think there is any indication of that. So I, I was really, really surprised at how weak Sprinkle was on, on the whole. I mean, I'm sure he was trying to, like, help out. But, you know, the, his arguments were just, like, really unconvincing. Yeah, they were very beginner level level stuff. And I, I would think, uh, like, Preston Sprinkle is a very smart, very open-minded, curious guy. He's very fun to talk to. I enjoy his podcast a lot. And I really admire how he was open-minded to really research the topic of hell and, you know, let his investigation actually shape and change his opinions. I, you know, I really admire anyone who does that. I would hope that Preston Sprinkle in the future would pay the same level of investigation and attention to the doctrine, uh, the Trinity or Unitarianism, as he has paid to the doctrine of hell, and that he would approach it with the same level of biblical respect and open-mindedness, and I bet that he would probably find that to be a very enlightening experience. Yeah. So what has the aftermath been of this debate? Have you had much conversation or heard much from people that uh, it changed their mind one way or the other, or it brought up the issue where it hadn't been there before? You know, I didn't hear too much. I sent it to a bunch of my friends and stuff like that. And the main feedback I got is that they liked my demeanor better than they liked Chris Date's demeanor. Um, <laughs> well, that's, that's, a, that's a big part of it. Yeah, but they were already my friends, I guess. So I don't know uh. if, uh, the, if they're a representative <laughs> sample. Um, but I, I didn't really get any, I don't know, fan mail or anything like that. That was people, you know, being like, oh, wow, I'd never heard or considered that before. I don't know if Preston did or not, but the, I didn't I didn't get too much feedback from that interview, honestly. OK, uh, now what are your plans for the future? Do you are you looking to get into more debates? Are you going to develop a website? You mentioned you're working on more YouTube videos, but uh, is, is that uh, pretty much the extent of what you're working on now? Yeah, um, I would say that that I, I need to sort of kick up my YouTube channel to be a little bit more professional. Right now, it's very amateurish, but I, I need to make that look a little bit better and to be a little bit more um, maybe go through and sort of re-edit or retouch up some of the audio recordings and stuff like that to make that a little bit better and and touch up my channel and maybe have an introduction and maybe sort of that intro music and stuff like that that a lot of people have. And then I would also like to get it out on sort of a podcast uh, form too. That's something that I really need to do that I haven't done yet. And then sort of once, I, once I've done those sorts of things, there's still a lot of people I want to talk to and a lot of people that I want to have conversations with and learn from and press them on a couple of questions. And I think I'm going to try and get a couple more higher profile sort of people than I've been able to talk to before 
hopefully to have some, you know, more serious conversation and get a little bit more exposure. But I also hope that I don't lose touch with, you know, just having some random conversations with my friends too. Uh, so, so that's really sort of my goal for, for the YouTube channel. And maybe I'll make a website or a Facebook group or stuff like that. Although I have like no desire to be a Facebook group moderator. Uh, I have <laughs> the world of respect for you guys that have taken that on, but I have no desire to do that. Uh, uh, let me ask you this, just to kind of a out there question. If you could snap your fingers and change one thing about the BU community, biblical Unitarian community, what would it be? My concern and my advice would be something like this. I don't find it as engaging or helpful when biblical Unitarianism constantly defines itself as being against Trinitarianism or something like that, where it's like, oh man, we're smarter than them. We have better arguments. Come join us, group of renegade rebels and stuff like that. Because honestly, what it sort of reminds me of, it sort of reminds me of atheists who like, oh, you had a bad experience in church, but now we can induct you into our group of smarter people who see all the problems with, you know, Christianity, and you can be a smart, snarky atheist and make make smart, snarky online comments with us um, and feel part of, you know, the enlightened, edgy, rebellious, uh, you know, fringe or something like that. I sometimes see that parallel a little bit between the sort of online biblical Unitarian community and the atheist community. Because really, I think at the end of the day, what I would want if I could snap my fingers and change something is that we would be a community that is more compelling not just in terms of having good arguments, both philosophically and exegetically, but also that our churches were healthier and that it looked like it was a more spiritually enriching place and community and that we had some sort of, I don't know, energy and growth and, you know, just evidence of God at work in our community that people wanted to be a part of and that it was connected to the doctrine of Unitarianism, but it wasn't just some sort of snarky sense of intellectual superiority because we need to appeal to all sorts of people really in order to build a healthy church that'll last generations and grow and do God's work. That's a great answer. Thank you for that. I think you're right. It's easy to get uh, puffed up and say, oh, well, I used to be clueless and now I've seen the light, Uh, but then... (laughs) you know, not engage in any kind of community and not uh, be the church that we're called to be in the scriptures. For a lot of BUs, you can understand why it's so difficult with your own experience is that unless you bite your tongue uh, at every turn, you get found out and you get kicked out. It makes it really hard to participate in evangelical institutions. You know, it's very limited what kinds of fellowships and churches are around, at least in the United States, it's something that I'd like to see continually grow over time, that uh, there would be more and more physical community for people. But in the meantime, there's lots of virtual groups that people can join in on, and you know, they're not, hey, let's, let's talk about how the Trinity is dumb. No, they're just like normal Bible study groups, and uh, yeah, yeah. so I uh, appreciate you, you mentioning that. Anything else you'd like to mention as we close out here? 
Well, uh, I'm really encouraged by the work that you're doing and, and your church and your community that you seem to be doing exactly what, what I was hoping to see more of. So um, I'm, I'm wishing nothing but growth and, and success for you guys and praying for you guys. And uh, I've really appreciated uh, getting to talk with you. And I feel like we have a similar background and, and can understand each other pretty well. And it, it's sort of a rare thing to, to be able to have and to find. Yeah. And we met on the, the, the field of battle, if you yes. recall, initially. <laughs> yes, we did. Ultimate Frisbee. And I was like, who's that tall guy over there with the disc in his hand? And uh, that's, uh, that's how we originally came across each other. Yes, yes. <laughs> Playing Ultimate Frisbee. Yeah, that was We that converged. Was <laughs> we, we converged. And I, luckily, I don't think anybody broke in any, any limbs or sprained any ankles. But uh, yeah. I remember I was playing barefoot and I had some awful uh, sores and uh, blisters on my feet <laughs> after that. That's fun. All right. Well, thanks so much, Sam, for your time today. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Well, that's it for this interview. If you'd like to leave a voice message for either Sam or myself via SpeakPipe, you can do that in the show notes for this episode or at restitudio.org. And we may even just play that out on a future episode. Uh, Also, if you'd like to type out a comment, you can do that on restitudio.org. Just find episode 367, Excommunicated for My Beliefs, and leave your thoughts there. Additionally, if you'd like to check out Sam's YouTube channel, you can find him by searching Transfigured on YouTube. That's just the name of his channel. It's very simple and easy. And last of all, I wanted to recommend that if you haven't yet, check out his debate with Chris Date. I mean, Chris Date is an absolute slugger, uh, one of the most proficient debaters I've ever heard. And uh, Sam did incredibly well against Chris Date. And I have the, the link to Preston Sprinkle's Theology in the Raw podcast, episode 783, Trinitarianism versus Unitarianism. So take a look at that if you're interested. I wanted to mention as well that we have a little poll going in the Restitutio Facebook group about what biblical framework you use for making sense of the overall scope of Scripture, the meta narrative, as it's called. And uh, so we have a few options there to choose from progressive covenantalism, dispensationalism, covenant theology, or a lot of people are saying, I'm not sure, or none of the above. And uh, so if you are interested in participating in that, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I'm going to be teaching a class on progressive covenantalism coming up in January, and I'm doing a lot of research on the subject. Would love to see where you line up as a Restitutio listener and what comments you have or flaws you see in the various different frameworks that people use to make sense of Scripture. So take a look at that if you are a Facebook user. That's it for this week. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so at restitutio.org. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.